Hi, this is Keith Davis with Nesh Realty, and you're listening to Sweat the Details podcast with Jonathan Kaufman, Jim Duncan, and myself. Today, we had a chance to spend some time with Jonathan Miller, who is the president and CEO of Miller Samuel, a real estate appraisal company out of New York. And we had a great chance to talk about where consumers should be looking at for for information, such as the Case-Shiller and the importance or lack thereof of Case-Shiller on daily buying opportunities. We spent some time talking about the importance of remaining neutral in data presentation for brokers and agents in the real estate profession. And we also looked at the differences between the way people should be viewing large and small market and how that data may or may not uh, flow through evenly around the country. Well, Jonathan, you know, I just want to jump right in and say, you know, thanks for making the time. Um, sure. If you don't mind giving a quick intro for yourself of who you are and what you do. Sure. Uh, my name is Jonathan Miller. I'm the president and CEO of Miller Samuel, which is a Manhattan-based real estate appraisal firm. Uh, I co-founded the firm, my partners and my wife and my sister, and we started in 19, uh, I think before the beginning of time. Uh, it's been 32 years, and we cover the New York City metro area. Uh, one of the sidebars for um, our practice is uh, about 24 years ago, I started writing market reports on the region, and it's expanded nationally. So uh, the research that I write about uh, uh comes out in court, usually quarterly reports, and there's a whole media blitz and a lot of uh, commentary on the, you know, the state of the housing market in various parts of the country. It's used by the Fed and a lot of federal agencies, so it's sort of a hobby gone wild. Well, I mean, uh, that, that's a good thing to have a, have a hobby you enjoy. It actually pays the bills once in a while. It, yeah, that's a theory, although, you know, I, I strictly do all this to help people. You know, I put them in front of me. So, so a quick, some quick thoughts. I mean, where, where, where do you see, you know, using that national lens, um, where do you see the national market, you know, where we are in, you know, now to where you project it going in, in the, the rest of 2019? Sure. So, so uh, to let, let me disclaim and then contradict myself to answer that question, <laughs> if that's helpful. Sure. Uh, the first is that while there is no national housing market, um, in aggregate, we do have some trends that are developing, um, but they vary by locale, obviously. So, for example, if you look at existing home sales and new home sales over the last, uh, over, since last spring, they've been declining on a year-over-year basis. And one thing I always tell people is to please ignore any statistics that are seasonally adjusted and just focus on the raw year over year. I think that's much more telling on the state of the market. Um, and we've been seeing sales decline. Now, why is that important? Is because most people, when they think of the housing market, they think of price trends as, hey, that's the health of the market. Uh, I can give you a scenario. So, for example, in South Florida, where I cover a lot, do a lot of uh, um, 10 or 11 markets down there. In 2005, uh, prices are rising, but you have uh, this phenomenon I call the greater fool theory, uh, which is not of my invention. But essentially, you had carpenters and nurses 
uh, quitting their jobs and speculating. And so at the same time, housing prices were surging, sales activity was collapsing. And then once you ran out of people to buy that flip, prices collapsed. Um, I'm not suggesting nationally is a flipping scenario at all, but what I'm saying is we're looking at the wrong metrics. Sales, uh, the way to think of housing trends is you look at sales first, and if uh, in, a, in a weakening market, sales decline first, and then inventory starts to expand. And then one to two years later, you tend to see uh, prices either moderate, decline, but perhaps not rise as quickly as they had been. And the fact that national numbers year over year are declining isn't is an, a metric that I think is really worth paying attention to. Um, if I could just ramble a second about Case Schiller, as please a, do. Uh, as an index, <laughs> I know Robert Schiller, Nobel laureate, uh, but no consumer should ever look at Case Schiller as a metric on the housing market. Um, but maybe they do things in different in Virginia. Uh, maybe you guys, when you wake up in the morning, you look at the average temperature of six months ago, and that's how you decide what to wear today. <laughs> I don't know. Do you do that? Like, is that we we tend to not things? do that? And, for me. And, they, and they don't even cover the Charlottesville MSA, right? But it, right. it's something that does impact the psychology of the buyers and sellers because even though it doesn't cover our market, they see the headlines on you know USA Today, New York Times, and they apply that you know knowledge in air quotes. Uh, to right. to their market. Every 30 days it comes out and it, it all it does is confuse. And uh, uh, about a little over a decade ago, I had a Wall Street startup was looking to acquire my firm during the housing boom. Um, obviously, the housing boom ended badly and so did this venture, but we created a competing index to Case Schiller. So I learned a lot about the national compilation of data. And one of them was that the Case Schiller index um, is only on single family homes. So in New York city, our housing stock, just Manhattan alone is 95% apartments, co-ops and condos, uh, single family homes are a rounding error in the stats. Um, and so the case show index for New York actually covers New York city, Long Island, Fairfield County, Connecticut, Westchester County, Connecticut, five or six counties in New Jersey and a county in Pennsylvania. So New York, it has nothing to do with New York. That's number one. And the second is it lags the market by about six months. So that's why I made that joke. It literally, um, and it's even further if you start thinking about meeting of the mind. So what good is that? The only reason I bring this up is, you know, there's a confusion. It was never intended to tell you what the consumer, what the market was doing. It was intended to tell traders how to short or go long on our, our country's largest asset class, and they also hedge non-fat dried milk, cheddar cheese, weather insurance, all kinds of other stuff that they can't figure out real estate. So, Jonathan, so anyway, let me let me ask that. I mean, if if Case Shiller is is something we shouldn't be paying attention to in terms of making buy sell decisions, which makes complete sense. I want to go back. You had you had mentioned ignoring seasonal adjustments. Is your is your feeling the same on that? That it just it becomes a smoothing treatment that doesn't isn't responsive, or what is the what is the yes. It, it's an acad it really is an academic exercise at this point. Uh, you know, if you look at it macro, you know, if you're looking at a 50-year or a 20-year window, six months doesn't make any difference. But that's not what it's being used for. It's being used for consumers to say, hey, the housing market's getting better or worse based on price. Two things 
to think about. One is that it lags the meeting of the minds between buyers and sellers by six months or more. Five to seven months would be typical. So if we're in January, the case shiller data that's coming out is um, six months ago, which is you know the end of the summer. How is that relevant to today? Uh, that's number one. Uh, number two is that um, it, it's all price focused. So, you know, pricing trends are the caboose on the end of the train. If trains still had cabooses, um, maybe they do in your market, they don't here. Uh, and, and so you want to look at sales and transactions first. As far as the national economic metrics, um, I, uh, you know, I think the way to think of them is here's the overview of the, of the whole country but it may or it probably doesn't apply to my local market. Right. Um, and, and that's it. I mean, it's all, you know, it's like anything, local market knowledge is kind of all that matters. Sure. And, and I guess, you know, the other question is if you, if you've got a local agent who's able to produce your, your local sales price data, your sales volume data, you know, how do you, how can you even look though at, you know, micro markets when agents look at them tend to be very small, right? At, yes. at what point do they actually have statistical significance? At what point when you're, if you're looking at an area that only has 100 sales in a year and this year it went to 110, and I'm not sure that the, that 10% increase in sales is necessarily driving what, what consumers should be thinking about either, is it? Uh, not necessarily. I mean, you know, uh, when you have 100 sales in a market, and I cover several of them that maybe have a little bit more than 100, but it's that same problem, the Hamptons the East End of Long Island, Aspen, Colorado, and we just started covering downtown Boston. And it's well more than 100, but it's still a a small number. So what you get is much more erratic uh, patterns uh, as uh, I probably talk, you know, just in the nature of my uh, pushing out all this data, probably talk to a half a dozen uh, journalists a day uh, they just call me. I don't have any PR. They're just anxious for sort of raw numbers. And uh, what you know, they'll tell you from journalism school is three data points make a trend. Um, and you know that's sort of a good rule of thumb where you have one or two quarters or one or two months where you see an uptick right. um, outside. You know, on a year-over-year basis. Uh, you know, when you start getting to two or three, you start saying, okay, that's a trend, as opposed to just. You know, an erratic you know, an moment. consistent uptick in a market with limited data points. I mean, I think the whole thing about small markets and reporting information is, you know, it, so the challenge in the brokerage community, um, and as a disclaimer, I was, I don't want to brag, but I was a broker for six months in my career <laughs> in Chicago. So that makes me infinitely, um, you know, knowledgeable about uh, your profession. Um, but I think that when you think about, um, you know, one of the, the challenges the brokerage community has is neutrality of the, inf- you know, presenting the information, conveying the information. I think that's much more of a challenge um, to the consumer than the actual data itself and the trends that it evokes. I think, you, you know, everything has to be balanced in terms of the way you look at when the, when the market is softening, you talk about the market softening and you don't just cherry pick when things are booming you talk about negative things as well as positive things that you're concerned about so it's all about the credibility of how you drive 
the, the message. What I think of it is, you know, Jim, if someone's sitting, you know, you're with your your best friend at a Starbucks or, or you know local coffee sh- coffee shop, and they ask you, "How's the market?" Um, you know, what do you say? You know, what would you say? And I think that's has to come out in your um, in anything you produce as well uh, on the state of the market. At Nest, you know, I, we put out market reports for every single one of our our markets, and I think that the you know if I'm in the coffee shop with the, with one of my friends and they say, "How's the market?" It it's always preceded by well, it depends. You know, I think yes. that it depends on where they are and where their micro market is because I can show them, you know, mm-hmm. I think that we do exceptional reports and we've, we've made some changes that, actually I'll send one to you after this, um, that I think highlights some of the, the better parts in the, in, of our micro markets. But it really depends on, on what that buyer is looking for. They're looking for a single family home, attached home, condo, apartment, what have you. So I think that one right. thing that we try to convey you know, locally in, in each one of our, 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 our offices is, you know, be aware of the market data, you know, intimately and be able to answer that, you know, you know honestly, you know, with, 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 right. with candor and, and credibility, because it really, there, there's no one answer to how's the market. To- totally right. And you make a brilliant point, which is uh, if you're talking about a starter home or some sort of high end home, those markets have different different consumers, different product. They're not the same market. They're a sub-market. So, that, so then take that a step further and say, well, existing home sales, well, how many sub-markets does that have? Right. You know, a million? Um, you know, it's, it's sort of endless. So you're absolutely right. That's a, that's a great uh, clarification point. I want to touch on that topic that we just talked about with the, with the market within the market, with especially focusing on the luxury market versus the starter home market. I saw something that you said recently was that the New York luxury market has definitely slowed, but the starter market, starter home market, which I guess officially dipped below the median price, dipped below a million dollars for the first time in in several years. I'm embarrassed. Right. Big, big numbers. Um, But can you, can you talk a little bit about the dichotomy of the, of the luxury market versus the starter home market in New York city and then what that, how that translates into small town USA and to other markets throughout the country. Sure. So in many ways, it transfers directly. You just have to drop off a zero or two off of the numbers. It's the same principles of supply and demand, same principle of sort of the optics of what you read. And um, the one thing in New York, uh, so we have a, you know, to sort of throw out numbers for shock value, our current record is about a, a is a one hundred million dollar sale, and there's going to be a closing of a condo for two hundred and fifty million dollars. Uh, it's, it's expected to close in the first quarter of this year. You know, those are I don't know I don't know how you feel about but those are real numbers. <laughs> those are significant. Big. Um, and so we have a problem in our market. Uh, uh, where you have somebody in a starter apartment that, uh, let's say, is, uh, you know, $400,000, and that that person said, you know, prices it at five fifty dollars because they said, hey, if someone's confident enough to spend a million, $100 million on an apartment, that means the market is really strong and I can overprice because, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll likely get my number. And we've had a, we had a lot of that over the last three or four years. 
it's a phenomenon that I I've dubbed. I'm trying to get it. Yeah, you know, I'm hoping somebody someday will put it in the Urban Dictionary. But I've, I coined this phrase about four years, three years ago, called aspirational pricing, and it's sort of asking prices that have no logic to them. And and one of the parts of this phenomenon is that the consumer pricing uh, um, has no shame <laughs> in overpricing, which I find sort of interesting. Uh, and we have a lot of that, it, you know, it skews towards the higher end. But I'm sure that happens in any, I, I mean, I see that in, uh, I cover the outlying suburbs of, uh, of New York City and, you know, median price might be around three, 400,000. Um, I know that's well above the national numbers, but relative to New York, it's the median is, you know, just under a million, you know, it's, it's still much less and the same thing is happening. Um, so I think, you know, I, and, and this is one of the challenges of measuring those markets is, I don't know, uh, in 1994, when I started covering the region or covering Manhattan first is, uh, when I said the luxury market, you know, that's such a subjective, um, uh, term, but I just have a dry, hard definition, which is, um, it's the top 10% of all the transactions. Now, that is very, you know, generic and and can be very misleading, but that's the best I could come up with. And one of the things that we're starting to see now in markets that I cover, especially in South Florida, is that when the high end, think of the top, if you take the top 10% of the market and all of a sudden what normally is the top 10% goes quiet. Well, what happens is the top 10% drops down a price echelon. And when you start comparing it, it shows huge declines, but they're usually about the same decline as square footage. Um, you know, the square footage dropped 20% and median price dropped 20% for the luxury market. So so I see, and, and this is sort of my long-winded way to answer your question is, I see the presentation of a credible market report as an opportunity for a broker to tell the story. Like it's all about telling the story as opposed to just regurgitating numbers. It went up 10%, it went down 3%. Um, but why? And and I tend to do the why part in a sort of physical characteristic change, like shift in the mix, than I would saying, you know, hey, people were more optimistic because um, they think they're going to get a more people are getting a bonus this year or whatever, um, which is all kind of silly. It's kind of like when the Dow Jones Industrial Average drops, you know, 150 points. Uh, they'll say, "Oh, you know, people were taking profits," or you know, it's just an anecdotal answer, and that's all well and good, but you got to put some sort of technical behind it as well. Yeah, Jonathan. There's no question. We've we've seen in some of our markets where that that luxury piece will just stop trading, um, and there's yes. a question of is that is that a lack of confidence? Is that a lack of um, kind of the is there price insensitivity going on? And the and I think my response many times has been that within that luxury market, many of the sellers have no need to sell, and there is an unwillingness to accept that they have taken a loss. And until you until you take it off the paper and put it into the bank, it's not a real loss. And so 
they hold prices more firmly. And, and like you said, it's aspirational pricing. But I think there's, there's a fascinating point where buyers say, we're not willing to pay the price, but sellers say, that's fine. We're willing to not sell. Correct. And, and actually, that's it, great that you bring that up because one of the things we're seeing in the New York metro area is that, uh, so my rule of thumb as an appraiser is that I've noticed, you know, it takes one to two years for a seller to de-anchor from a price set in a prior market. And, um, and, and, and I think what we're seeing here in, in our market, in terms of the slowdown, most of the metro area has seen four to six consecutive quarters of year-over-year declines in sales. And uh, what we're seeing is either the seller capitulating to the new market, but more often they're just they're just leaving the price the, the prices alone, and but and more often they're just taking the uh, the inventory off the market, and um, and and it really takes them one to two years to not feel like they're leaving money on the table. And I feel like with the new tax law, which I I don't think impacts your location, but it has a significant impact. The ten thousand dollar cap on uh, deductibles for property taxes and salt uh, uh, is really having a big uh, impact on um, in the New York metro area because we have, especially in the state of New York, less so in Connecticut, but in the tri-state area, New Jersey, New Jersey, and New York have the highest taxes of uh, right. in the state, and so what this new law ends up doing and this is part of the seller disconnect is that what it does is you know for 80 percent of the us probably everybody except for the northeast and the west coast um you know the doubling the standard deductions for single and married essentially offsets the ability to write off you know itemized deductions for a real estate transaction in New York, you know, and I'm not being cavalier about the numbers, but it, you know, you have a, you know, plenty of sales for ten million dollars, and if your real estate taxes are one hundred seventy-five thousand a year, that's one hundred sixty-five thousand, you know, before you know the the tax bracket consideration, in addition to the state and local, which are one to two times what the property taxes are. It ends up being real money now. As a percentage, it's not that much relative to the sale price, but it it does impact value. And we're going through this, like I said, seller disconnect. One to two years of adjusting to what that actually means, you know, um, to the actual numbers. There's nothing positive about it, but the question is whether it's you know how how close to neutral it is. And, and that's what the market is vetting right now. So Jonathan, within your, within your practice, are you being brought in frequently with sellers who have um, kind of unrealistic expectations? Are you being brought in by realtors or by the sellers themselves asking for appraisals and, and information for properties on market? Or are you finding yourself almost exclusively after, after contract on these, these properties? So, uh, so I would say that we, we aren't asked to do, to do sort of a reality check for sellers as often as you would think. The way the brokerage community has sort of grappled with this, and I do a lot of public speaking to the uh, brokerage community, usually once or twice a week. And um, you know, the feedback is, especially with the dollars on these transactions, is that it's more effective 
because they know everything um, as far as they're concerned, even with a credible independent appraiser, they tend to, they just need time to sort of stew over it and, and adapt to it. And that's really what we're going through. I have to say, just as an aside, the vast majority of our practice is really outside the sales space. Um, since the financial crisis, we um, shifted our practice away from, so I'd say we have about 25% of our business. We interact with, you know, purchases and refis and seller and buyer value opinions. But the other 75% is um, uh, matrimonial, estates and trusts. Uh, I, I don't know if you have a need for this, but um, I'm, I'm known for being able to praise uh, dumbwaiter air shafts uh, in old co-op buildings, um, as well as common hallway space roof rights, and basement storage. So I don't know if there's a, an active market for dumbwaiter air shafts, but if you ever need to know anybody uh, that does that, I'm your guy. You know, Jonathan, I, I actually had one more question that I'm going to just just not even ask because I think that's a fantastic place to end because I've never heard such a, a wild thing in, in, uh, in any of the markets we operate in. Um, so I'm going to just say, you know, thank you so so much for taking the time to to join us today. Uh, we truly truly appreciate the knowledge and your time. Oh, it's my my pleasure. I'm happy happy to uh, be invited. Thank you so much. Cool. It's been great, Jonathan. Thanks, Thanks so, so much. much. Thanks, Jonathan. You bet, guys. See ya. Take care. So that was fascinating. Um, Great, uh, great conversation. Uh, just a couple points that I'll bring up. Um, I loved the new vocabulary term that I learned, aspirational pricing. That's the first. The second really interesting concept was the um, the idea that it takes, in, in, you know, in New York, um, based on what Jonathan's perception is, one to two years for a seller to what he called de-anchor from a value um, of a of the of the of their home um, when a market's shifting. And I think that's it's interesting to think about that. It's also interesting to, to think about how imperfect and slow the market moves because it's based on human beings right. uh, much more so than, I mean, yes, the stock market is based on human beings, but it's also based on a lot of just numbers and, you know, what happens on a, a, a daily and by the minute. Um, so, you know, just thinking about it, how slow our market moves and how, how much emotion is in the market really makes the real estate market in the across the country and each lo, lo in each location um, in its locale just imperfect and slow. Well, it's also emotional. I mean, I think that you know, for the most part, we're talking about you know homes that are owned by people and they're not commodities. And this is you know, you know these these homes are you know retirement, college education, you know the next home, and all of that stuff. So I mean, it's not something that I think. You, know, you can't track it every day like you do the stock market or you know or mutual fund. It's it's something that takes time for people to 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 understand what the true value is. And some of that sometimes that's even you know holy cow we're going to make what in five years? That's amazing. And other times it's we were expecting to make why in ten years and we're not going to make anything near that. Right. And it's 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 just a foundationally emotional process. Yeah. So that the whole concept of a. You know that back in two thousand three, two thousand four, two thousand five, when everybody looked at their houses as ATM machines, right? Um, and hopefully that's gone. Um, I still think people see it in some respects. And sure, you can, 
you can buy a house in an amazingly low price because we are in an imperfect market. Um, and you could have immediately tons of value in the, in your in equity in your house, but, uh, that's not necessarily the way that, that we as real estate professionals are recommending our clients look at, look at the properties. Right. Well, I, you know, I think you, you think about all your financial advisors and every single one will say, never look at your portfolio daily or weekly or monthly. It's, you know, you're, you're putting money in for a long investment. You're waiting for retirement. You're waiting for kids to go to college. It's, it's really the same with the house, right? It doesn't matter on January 1st or July 1st of every year what your house is worth. It's not going to, it's not going to change the cash flows to your family. It's not going to change your vacation schedules. It's, this is the investment in a lifestyle in a, in a home. And when it comes time to sell, that's the only time the value really matters. Um, and then it's, and then it's a realistic question, right? I mean, Jonathan was talking about two years to re-anchor. Most sellers don't plan to be on the market for two years. Most people are looking to get out a lot faster. There has to be a more rapid re-anchoring than that if, if they're that far off. Um, and I think it's just, it's a, it's a fascinating question of, of kind of consumer mentality of what is our net worth as a family. That's what's, that's where that number really drives, even though it's not part of the transaction on an annual basis. Right. No, I mean, I, I, you know, it's funny. One of the, one of the things that, you know, that we're, we're all sitting here with our notes that we took as we, <laughs> as we went through that conversation. One of the ones that I, that I think we all wrote, wrote down was when he talked about the, you know, the, the neutrality of the data. Mm-hmm. And, Providing the credible data, and so one of the things that we when we started the firm, you know, however long ago, it was that we provided the honest commentary on what the market was doing. I think it's something with it that we need to make sure we, we continue to do throughout the the booms and the the unbooms, if you will. Well, it's <laughs> vital. It bust. We've um, we've used this word all the time, but it's trust, right? You can't right. earn somebody's trust if you're always saying it's a great time to buy, it's a great time to sell. It can't be at the same time. So, right. giving people honest feedback. Jim, just like you said, 10 years ago when we came out with our first kind of few rounds of market reports that were truthful and honest and really gave the true pulse of what the market was telling us, um, we got pushback from other brokers saying, why are you saying that it's that not a great time, to, it's not a buy great a time to buy a house? Right. And our answer was, because it's, it's not, not a great, great time to buy a house. <laughs> um, so, you know, trust is, trust is key. Yeah, and, and, and it's um, another one of my notes I took was, you know, the 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 luxury market. You know, I think that was, you know, it's not a number. It's it's not a, you know, it's over fifty million. Right. Over two hundred fifty. I mean, two hundred fifty million. million I, I for can't even condo, say that out loud for a condo. I struggle to articulate <laughs> two hundred fifty million dollars for for anything. Uh, but talking about the luxury market, I think that's something that really cross market. You know, Keith. You know, Jonathan. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's probably something we can we can apply. To most of our markets. Well, I think it's it's, it's interesting. We're, we've been wrapping up our annual report within within Nest, and I've been looking at all the data for all of our markets. And we always have this luxury page. And one of the one of the concerns I always have is looking at you know price shifts within that luxury page. It's you know how have have those homes been identified, and is that really um, adjusting? I think I think Jonathan's done a great job of saying it's ten percent. This is where you are. Um, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I, I think we'll we'll definitely have to go back and look at our own numbers and see how we're handling it. Yeah, and I think you know, maybe the the one of the last things is ignore Case Schiller. I, mean, I, I liked I, I liked he said you know you don't we don't wake up and say what was the weather six months ago. I think that's probably one of the the better ways I've seen, I've heard someone define you know, what those national numbers are that we need to be aware of. Absolutely. 